we come to God's Word this morning. Our Father, we thank you that you speak to us through the Word, uh, and it's through the hearing uh, of the Word that we get faith. And so we ask that today uh, you would grant us faith. You would help us to see that uh, this Word written down long ago is for us today. Help us to see what Jesus would have us know about himself. And Father, we ask we ask now that you would meet with us. And we ask that together in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, September 11, uh, 2001 is marked in history for many of us as a devastating day. Uh, many of you will remember it. Many of you would have uh, remember where you were at the time uh, when those planes were flown into the Twin Towers uh, in New York City. And in the immediate aftermath, uh, people were angry, confused, uh, and trying to work out whether this was an act of God's judgment. Uh, some of you will know that the next day, September 12, uh, some Christian uh, televangelists on a show called the 500 Club uh, said that this immediately said that this was an act of God's judgment upon the United States for the fall in morality away from God's plan and purpose. But uh, people in New York uh, who were devastated, particularly pastors in New York, who were devastated by people in their congregation, family members, friends. Uh, all sorts who had died and were affected dramatically by this event, were outraged uh, that they would immediately turn to calling this God's judgment without having considered deeply the facts. Pastor Tim Keller, who uh, was in New York at the time uh, with a fairly uh, congregation that had been going for about 10 years, a bit more than 10 years or so, um, they, their congregation tripled uh, the Sunday after with people looking for answers. And he said the first thing uh, that you actually get in the Bible when it comes to devastation is not uh, God's wrath and sort of like mirth at destruction, but rather a God who grieves over evil and a God who actually weeps uh, over sin and evil. And so uh, I think the 500 Club were quick to cast the first stone rather than actually examining their own hearts and the pride, perhaps, uh, at blaming the victims. Now, in our text, we actually today uh, see an act of God's judgment and the second most dramatic act of God's judgment in history. The second most dramatic act of God's judgment in history. A worldwide flood, one that devastates humanity and uh, all animals and plants uh, on land. It's pretty clear in our text that it hits the whole earth. Uh, in fact, it's repeated three times uh, from verse 21 onwards that everything that was on the earth, uh, all, it says verse 21, all flesh that died, died, all that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures, Verse 22, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils were the breath of life died. Verse 23, he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. It's pretty clear in our text that there was a global event. Oddly enough, um, around uh, the world, 
uh, ancient cultures actually, independent of one another, record a large flood event. Now, I'm not going to go too much into the detail and the history because our records of history get a bit murky uh, other than our biblical record here back then. Uh, but just to say that uh, there was a catastrophic global event at the time and it was a work of God's judgment. Now, that might trouble you that um, our current geological records for some don't stack up to the biblical record that we see here but I don't think that should be the first thing that troubles you this morning. I think the first thing that should trouble you this morning is that God is willing to bring his judgment upon all of humanity for their sin. Uh, We get a bit of context in uh, Genesis chapter 6 that it was because humanity is so evil that our heart is bent on wickedness, killing each other in gross violence. And we see it from time to time, don't we? The gross violence and wickedness of humanity. And at, at that time, it was probably worse in some ways than it is today, although we get echoes of it today, that God was willing to wipe out humanity and effectively start again. Now, our text doesn't just talk about God's judgment, though. It actually talks about God's salvation. It talks about someone whom God saved because of his righteousness, because of his relationship to God. And so this morning, we're going to take a careful look at God's judgment and his salvation. Not being quick to cast the first stone, as many are, but also taking a bit of responsibility uh, for the actions of humanity and see what God has to say to us. The first thing I want to do uh, with you this morning is just make a few observations on God's just judgment. The first thing I want to point out uh, in our text is that the righteousness of a few can save many. The righteousness of a few can save many. Now, this is actually pretty consistent throughout human history. You know, we find that one person can often save many through, you know, the um, invention of, uh, for example, antibiotics. Uh, One person invents antibiotics, they uh, discover something like penicillin, uh, and then they're able to save the lives of many through this incredible drug. Uh, We see that uh, through uh, the invention, this is around World War II as well, the invention of radar dramatically improved Uh, the success of the Allied forces in uh, defeating uh, the Nazis in the European uh, aspect of World War II. And we see uh, many of these things happening, that the righteousness of a few can save many, through uh, advances in medical technology, in other forms of technology, but also in people just standing up for what's right. Many of you uh, will remember uh, Martin Luther King uh, during the, uh, in the 60s and 70s in the United States who was fighting for the rights of African-American people in the United States. And he stood up and marched and was beaten down for it, but that was actually enabled to turn the tide uh, with segregation in uh, North America. Uh, you, some of us might remember um, much earlier uh, in the... Uh, abolition of the slave trade in England and such, where people stood up uh, and acted on behalf of others to abolish slavery and were successful. And again, these people were Christians. 
So what we find is that it's quite consistent that the righteousness of a few can save many, and this is evident with Noah. Noah, it says, uh, right from the, from the beginning of our text, verse 1, it says, God says, For I've seen, you, I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Noah is a righteous man, and so he is able to save others. He's able to save his own family. He's able to save enough uh, animals in this ark, which is an incredible um, bit of uh, construction, uh, and save enough animals and people to repopulate the earth. Now, I think something to point out from this uh, right off the beginning is that God works through families. Notice that Noah was pointed out as a righteous man, and so he was able to save his family and all the animals. But he acted on behalf of his family. This means that all of us are in various kinds of families. Some of us are strange, some of us close. But God works through families and he works through influence in families. Uh, I've had a distinct uh, impact in my life because of my father. Because my dad was a Christian and he was very uh, open about that and firm in his convictions. And so I have seen over decades, that impact my immediate family and my broader family. So much so that people will still pray because of his influence, though they don't hold the faith anymore. They'll pray and ask for grace uh, to be said over a meal uh, in sort of public occasions, family events, that kind of thing. But when he died it seems that his influence actually waned and it became even clearer that he had a strong influence upon the family because of his faith. So I've seen it work. I've, I've seen the influence that faith can have an effect upon a family. And so it points out that the faith that the individual has can have a dramatic effect upon a family and you should not discount that. It points to fathers, the faith of fathers being incredibly important in families, of mothers too. Very important. And the, the strength and the quality of the faith of the parent will directly affect the children. The reverse is also true. The weakness of the faith of the parent will directly affect the children. Now, this is uh, a principle, basically, that we get in the New Testament where Jesus talks about salt and light being the way that Christians ought to operate. Salt and light are agents of influence. Salt is something that you rub into meat as a preserving agent. It preserves it, it makes it better, makes it last longer and stops decay happening immediately. So it makes things better around it. Light illuminates. It means we can work, it means we can act, it means we can do things, it brings warmth, uh, it brings life. Light and salt are the agent... Uh, uh, metaphors of influence in the ways that Christians are supposed to act and live. And they really reflect this idea of righteousness, bringing good to those around you, doing good, bringing light, bringing life, bringing encouragement, bringing joy into the lives of others. This Noah influence is incredibly important and it is particularly important in the family unit. Now, this goes right down then to personal responsibility. You and I are 100% responsible for our own actions before God. 
100%. We can blame others uh, for the bad things that we do. We can justify our behaviour, but ultimately, before God, we are 100% responsible for our actions. And, and then what we see here is a man who took that responsibility seriously, and so he was able to save many through his actions. God has always worked this way. He's always worked for the righteousness of a few, even one, to bless the many. So, first observation is the righteousness of a few can save many. Second observation is that the soul that sins shall die. The soul that sins shall die. I actually get this um, phrase uh, from the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, uh, who has a whole section on this. But the idea of the soul that sins shall die is pretty consistent, again, throughout the Scriptures. Right from the beginning, uh, with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2, God warned them that if they did not believe in Him and take God, Him at His word and stay in right relationship with Him, sin would get them. It would take over their lives and it would mean that they would eventually die. That is what happens. And one of the obvious things, I think, whether you hold the Christian faith or not this morning, is that we are so troubled by death. We're grieved by death. It utterly bothers us. Uh, it utterly bothers us, this idea of ceasing to exist or going into the unknown. And even for those who are Christians and have uh, Christian family members or friends who pass away, they know the, uh, their family member or friend is going to enter into joy uh, in being in the presence of Jesus. And yet it still grieves us, that sense of loss. But why is it there? Well, the Bible tells us that the soul that sins shall die. You know, I mentioned earlier um, September 11 and the great tragedy that it was that people were casting the first stone, that they were essentially saying, blaming the victims and saying, uh, it's because of the great immorality in New York that this event happened, not because of the evil, evil of the perpetrators, of course. But I think one of the reasons why it was so... Um, uh, I guess, broad and brash and unhelpful is because the Bible is pretty clear that uh, God's standards are enormously high. God has called all of humanity to himself, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and to love, love your neighbour as yourself. The uh, New Testament is also pretty clear, as well as the Old, that uh, no one is righteous, no, not one, and we've actually covered this uh, several times as we've been going through the book of Genesis, is that actually all of humanity have failed to reach God's standards. We've looked at the world around us, we've looked at one another and thought, we can do this on our own, we don't need a maker to worship or to trust in, and we have made a mess of it. The evidence is in the world around us, in our broken relationships, and the violence which so often it takes over. So the reality is not that you know, some people deserve judgment and others don't. It's that we all are under God's judgment, lest we're saved. We are all under God's judgment, lest we're saved, because we have chosen our own way. Now, this might seem harsh, but C.S. Lewis, I think, explains it very well in his book on hell, oddly enough, uh, it's called The Great Divorce, but this is what he says. 
He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there would, could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. His point is that at the root of human rebellion against God, and that's like sin is just saying, my way, not your way. Or was it Frank Sinatra? I did it my way. At the root of human sin is saying, God, I'll do it myself. Like, I won't take you at your word. I won't take you in your witness in the created world around me. I'll just live my own way. And, and C.S. Lewis's point is that uh, the two kinds of people, one kind of people, person says, God, I trust you. I want to be in a relationship with you. I want to be saved by you. And so they say, thy will be done, as in I will follow you. Or at the end, if people choose their own way their whole life, God says to them, thy will be done, and you get your own way after death. The soul that sins shall die. So what have we seen? A couple of observations. The righteousness of a few can save many. Secondly, the soul that sins shall die. Thirdly, we see as an observation that evil multiplies, it doesn't dissipate. Evil multiplies, it doesn't dissipate. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 7, Sin has corrupted the entire world. There's increasing violence and devastation and destruction. It just goes on and on and on. The scary thing is that in the New Testament, Jesus says in the last days it will be like the days of Noah. It will be like the days of Noah. And we have seen this for some of us in living memory. I don't know about you, but uh, again, I've mentioned this earlier. World War II was incredibly destructive. For those who have perhaps family members who were there, who fought in the war, people came back different. They were devastated and, almost, and their souls died a little bit because of the destruction. The world was at war. And in fact, in the lead-up to uh, World War II was uh, also devastating. In human thought, uh, the the leading thought around the Western world was this idea of eugenics. The idea of creating the master race. This wasn't just in Nazi Germany. uh, This was in the United States and many other Western countries. In fact, it was the leading philosophical thought that uh, human beings should work to improve the gene pool, to eradicate the weak to eradicate uh, those genes and undesirable traits uh, and just promote good ones that will lead to a master race of humanity. This was all across the Western world. And you know what killed that uh, philosophy? It was when it was taken to its fullest extent uh, through the creation of the Aryan master race in Nazi Germany. And people realised this is evil. And so we see this great increase in evil, this great increase in violence. And as it is, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the last days. It's been here in living memory for some. The evil of Genesis chapter 6. So we see ebbs and flows, of course. Jesus talks about uh, the end times coming on like birth pains. That is, 
And for those of us who've had babies, even recently for some, will know that contractions come in waves, right? They come in waves. But then they dissipate and they come again. And it's been like that in human history. You get waves where it is intense. And you know what it should tell us? That humanity needs a saviour because evil is corrupting the human heart. And we've even had inklings of it in our uh, recent times with a a worldwide pandemic and all the disastrous effects of that in many levels uh, brought on to us. So evil multiplies, it doesn't dissipate. It should tell us that we actually do need salvation, lest we be consumed by it. Uh, Fourthly, God brings renewal from a few. So we've, also, we've seen firstly that the righteousness of a few can save many, but we actually see that renewal can come from a few. So God is not in the business of just saving people, but God is in the business of making things new and good again. This idea that God could repopulate the earth through one uh, extended family and through so a, a small amount of uh, animals and plants is actually entirely normal. We see that happening all the time uh, in our ecological world. So small, like small amounts grow into bigger amounts. But God is in the business of bringing renewal through a few to the many. This is actually a consistent pattern throughout the Bible. God saves one family through Noah. Then again, when we get to Genesis chapter 12, through one family, the family of Abraham, comes the nation of Israel. Uh, we see this idea of a righteous remnant in Israel. As some of Israel sort of walks away from God, some stay faithful and God stays with his people. We see this idea again in the New Testament with Jesus and the 12 apostles. Again, there's only a few of them, but God uses them to bring his blessing to the whole world. That is God's promise to Abraham. Through your descendant will I bring a blessing to the whole world. We even see this in the history of the early church. Do you know the most striking thing uh, that impacted the non-Christian world about um, Christians in the first couple of centuries was that they weren't afraid of death. And so they were able to care for the sick and care for the poor, even at their own expense. So when uh, the Justinian plague rolled through and killed sort of one in four people, Christians were out there helping the sick rather than fleeing from them. Why? They did not fear death. Isn't that incredible? And that was what won the hearts of the empire, to the point being that by the early 4th century, uh, the Roman emperor Constantine declared it to be a Christian empire. Why? Because Christians had worked their way from the ground up, loving the sick, loving the poor, being unafraid of death because they believed in the resurrection from the dead, won for them through Jesus Christ, and they brought renewal to a whole empire. Again, this pattern has continued over and over again. We've actually seen it in more recent times with uh, the two great awakenings in the Reformation in the 1500s. The work, and again, a lot of the changes in society were amazingly good. For everybody, not just the Christian people, but for everybody. This says that people like us can become a blessing, though there's few of us as Christians, can become a blessing to this whole nation, this whole world, 
if we would really let God have control of us. What's a one last observation of God's just judgment? Is that salvation is offered and rejected by many. So, clearly there's some that are saved from the judgment of God flooding the earth. Uh, and there's many that are not. People would have seen Noah building this ark. I mean, it's, it's big. <laughs> it's an enormous boat. Uh, and it was able to carry a, lo- like, a lot of animals, a lot of livestock, uh, people, and for a substantial amount of time. It would have been obvious to everyone that Noah is building a big boat in order to save him and his family and all the animals from God's just judgment and everybody ignored it. They thought, oh look, look there's Noah again with his crazy building project. Look, there he is. He's building some more of it. He's crazy. Noah, of course, would have had to endure this. He he probably began explaining to them this merciful God who would save them from his just judgment if only they would believe. And yet, they continued to reject it. In the New Testament, Jesus told a parable of a rich man and Lazarus. Uh, Lazarus was a poor man, a beggar, uh, who was, had a bad life, and he died. And a rich man was rich and had a great life, and he died. The poor man went to heaven, and the rich man went to hell. The rich man cried out, Please let me out of hell so I might tell my brothers so that they may avoid this because this is a place of torment. I'm just getting my own self-rule for all eternity without God's good blessing. But uh, it's replied to this rich man that even if someone were to be raised from the dead, they still wouldn't believe. The problem is not that we don't have enough evidence that God is real. The problem isn't uh, that God hasn't done enough for us. I mean, if God came in the flesh and died for all of humanity's sin and rose from the dead, then he's done enough. He's done everything, in fact, required, and he offers it freely. The Bible's really clear. God has given us to us life and breath and everything. Everything is here for us. The real issue as to why humans do not believe is at the very base our unbelief, is that we don't want God. We do not want his rule over us. Because Jesus did rise from the dead. Point being, Jesus told this parable, but he did rise from the dead. He was killed, crucified publicly in front of everybody. It's recorded for us outside of the Bible by historians and every credible historian in today's uh, tertiary education system agrees that Jesus was a real person who really lived and who really died a public death. So Jesus publicly died. And then on the third day, people began to see him. People began to see Jesus alive and in the flesh, not a ghost, not an apparition, but a real flesh and blood person 
and news began to spread. In fact, it's recorded that up to 500 people at one time saw the risen Jesus. These are in public documents, verifiable at the time. It's as if the newspapers went out and, and uh, journalists came and checked it out and said, yes, it's true, he really is risen from the dead. In fact, all our tools uh, which we would use in a court of law, all our tools that we would use to verify history, all the boxes are ticked when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus. And yet for many, it is still not enough. That God has risen from the dead, that there is a way to be saved from judgment if you would just put your light in with him, if you would just trust him, if you just give your life over to Jesus, you will be saved. Because this judgment here, though it's over and finished, uh, the one from Genesis chapter 7, God is coming again to finish his, and complete his judgment after he has brought salvation. Jesus will return. He's done it before and he will come again. And in the same way, God will bring salvation to those who will put their lot in with him. So I've seen several observations of God's just judgment. The righteousness of a few can save the many. The soul that sins shall die. Evil multiplies, it doesn't dissipate. And that should really bring us, when we see the birth pains of it, when we see the obviousness of it, to look for a saviour. God does bring renewal from a few and salvation is offered and rejected by many. But now I want to tell you that of the kind of faith true faith that saves. You see, in Noah, we see that the righteousness of one can save many. But I want to tell you that even observation of this principle is powerful enough to convince people to repent of their sins and be saved. So this is true in practice, right? Noah built a boat and saved people on the boat with him. But, and Jesus, right? Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of sin, so that if we trust in Jesus, his death pays in place of our death. We don't die eternally and go to hell. Jesus goes to hell for us. And so we win his reward, eternity with him in heaven. We get God forever. Now, it's not just being there and seeing it, but it's actually being aware of it by hearing the good news of it that we can be changed and transformed. Uh, my, well, it's probably not so much my wife, but I'm a sci-fi nerd, and um, I force her to uh, read books and watch... Um, I'm just joking, by the way, but we watch sci-fi movies and um, sometimes TV shows together. Anyway, I've been watching this uh, show called The Orville, which is... Very unusual, but uh, interesting at times. And uh, in season three, episode nine of uh, the series Orville, the Orville, the galaxy faces a grave threat. In alliance between two unlikely partners, which is the Planetary Union, which is made up of Earth, set about 400 years in the future, by the way, um, made, up the, made up of the Planetary Union, which includes Earth and a number of other worlds, and the AI robot race, the Kalon, with their uh, alliance, they take on the evil forces of the Krill and the Mocklin to stop them from releasing a superweapon that will destroy all the Kalon. I hope you're with me. 
Uh, Ensign Charlie Burke, who is a endearing young woman, however, she hates the Kalon, these uh, AI robots that are allied with the humans. Her best friend was killed uh, in a previous war with those AI robots, however, and yet she alone has the skills to disable the superweapon, to uphold the Alliance and protect the Kalon. In the last moments, it becomes clear that the only way to destroy the superweapon is for Ensign Burke to self-destruct the device, which she does, and lay down her own life for her enemies. Then, the Kalon leader, observing this, cannot reconcile why one who considered them as an enemy would sacrifice herself for them. When they see that this act of substitutionary self-sacrifice for an enemy, the Kalon leader repents of their past sins. You see, the righteousness of one, especially in self-sacrifice, convinces many to repent because of the grace and love displayed. Now, when I was watching this, I was like, oh, something's going on here. And I find in, often in science fiction, humanity has evolved uh, to the point where we don't need religion anymore, uh, and yet they can't beat the storyline at the centre of Christianity. It just comes out. They just can't help it. Let me say this again. And when the Kalons see this act of substitutionary self-sacrifice for an enemy, they repent of their past sins against the humans. The righteousness of one convinces the many to repent because of the grace and love displayed. What does this tell us? Because you and I weren't there 2,000 years ago when Jesus died. You and I were not on the boat with Noah and his family. Right? We weren't physically there. And yet the message itself is where the power lies. The mess- and, and this is so true for the cross because what was going on on the cross was a spiritual transaction. Jesus takes the penalty for sin, the just judgment of God, which was poured out on the many, he takes it on as one. Jesus on the cross takes the spiritual weight of sin upon himself rather than you getting what you really want which is your own self-rule for all eternity, which will devastate and destroy you and will be an endless soul-destroying experience, rather than you having that, Jesus says, I will take it. And he did. And just like the Kalon who looks upon the self-sacrifice of this woman, we look upon the self-sacrifice of Jesus and we've got to ask, we've got to do it justice, ask, why did he do it? And when we learn, Hopefully we learn that he does it out of love. That he does it because the Bible says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Our God is not a God of malice. Our God is not a God of mirth over suffering. Our God is a God who weeps with the weeping. Our God is is a God that Psalms tell us who bottles up the tears of his people because he cares for them. Our God is a God who would even take hell for us. That is what the Bible says. And that is what we see here. And it is in the message of it, which gets into the heart, which actually truly convinced people to repent of their own self-rule 
And rather than saying, my will be done, we say, thy will be done. So true faith that saves sees the righteousness of one that can save the many. True faith that saves also must be real. What do I mean by that? Well, this um, event in Genesis around Noah and the flood is actually referred to many times uh, throughout the Bible. We get it again in um, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, and it says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You see, Noah's obedience and reverent fear arose from faith. He believed God and so trusted his word. You know, this is actually telling us a really important equation. It's an equation, and you've got to get the order right. Because it was out of trust in God that Noah became obedient to his word. It was out of his faith that it was credited to him as righteousness. He wasn't righteous and doing good things for God. No, he only did those things because, like, you think about it. If you're in Noah's boots, you hear something from a God whom you can't see. We don't know how he heard, but he heard. You begin to build a boat from plans you've been given, and everyone around you is laughing at you. Everyone around, no one around you takes you seriously. What does it take to keep going? Faith, because you can't prove it any other way. What does it take? It takes faith. Noah had a real relationship with God. He actually believed. He believed that God is a real person. He believed and loved God and trusted that God would save him. Isn't that interesting? And so true faith, faith that saves must be real. Now, we've got to contrast this to actually give it its full effect. Jonathan Edwards, uh, who was an 18th century philosopher and theologian from North America, said the difference between true Christian faith and false religion is that true Christian faith loves God for himself, but false religion just loves the benefits of of religion. What do we mean by that? Well, Jesus explains it another way. He says in Matthew chapter 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You know, uh, in the ancient world and many traditional cultures today, the way that it worked in religion was you like give things to a god or an idol and it gives you things back. So you, you make offerings and you get better crops that year. You make offerings, you uh, get fertility and have more children. You give offerings and you become wealthy, whatever it is. And, and so you have different gods for different spheres of industry and life and you make offerings, you get something back. The reverse is also true. So if bad things are going on in your life, you expect that you're under the curse from that god or that idol. And so you give offerings that they would relieve you from that curse. 
So that's the way that it worked in the ancient world. It was transactional. And in traditional cultures still today, around much of the world, that's the way it works. It's very transactional. There's actually little to no relationship uh, because what you find is you always have to work through some kind of mediator. You have to go to a temple, you have to go to a place, you're always removed from actually knowing this God, you're kept at a great distance, you never know what they're up to and you never know whether you're going to get a blessing or a curse. That's the way that it works. But in Christianity, it is completely different. God is not interested in a transactional relationship because he has already given to us life and breath and everything. Everything that we have is already from him. He wants us. He wants our souls. He wants friendship. He wants a loving covenant relationship with us. He wants us back. Jesus describes this uh, heart for humanity uh, in Luke 15 in the parable of the prodigal son. This uh, father has two sons, a a, a younger one, an older one. The father must be quite wealthy. Uh, The younger one says, I want my inheritance early, essentially. I wish you're dead so I could get the money. The father gives it to him, gives him half of his inheritance. The younger son runs away with it, spends it all, you know, gambles it all away, ends up living with the pigs in the mud. He could even afford to eat food as good as the pigs. And so when he realises and comes to himself that he had a much better life when he was in the household of his father, he decides, I'm going to repent. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to come back to the father. And the striking thing is not that the young man repents because his life was in tatters. It's kind of obvious if you're reading it or listening to it that he should repent. The striking thing is that the father is waiting for him. The father is looking as to the horizon, waiting for the son to return. Had he he got news that the son was on his way or was he always waiting that the son would come back? What does this tell us about the father heart of God? He wants us back and he'll welcome us to himself. His heart is for the lost. His heart is for the wayward. His heart is for those who would reject him who would say, I'll do it my way. His heart is still for them. The beautiful thing we see revealed as we go through the Bible is this God of judgment is a God of salvation. He doesn't want us to spend eternity separate from him. He doesn't want that for us. He wants our good, but he is just. He honours our self-will. He honours humanity being able to make its own choices because that's who we are. He made us rational beings, made in his image, just like himself. But he does not want us to stay like that. And so he would even send his own son for us. So true faith is a faith that doesn't just love what you get from God as if it's just this transactional relationship, you know, And typically we find this um, amongst modern day religious people and people who are around church, that you might come into Christianity or the idea of Christianity when life is going well. But then as soon as life becomes to get difficult, you realise, what am I really in this for? You know, people were talking about my life will go well and, you know, I've got this relationship with God and I'll be filled with joy. But as soon as life gets hard, we pull out because we're not getting what 
we thought we were in for. And yet it really shows us that all we loved was the supposed benefits from the relationship, not God himself. But if we knew God and we loved him, if we really loved him, then our relationship with him would endure difficulty. Another example, in marriage. In marriage, we can, rather than, this is very subtle, but it's important to point out, we can love what we get from the other person. We can love the love that we receive from the other person rather than loving the other person. I call this the happiness contract. So many people will um, go to get married, and this is really obvious today, actually. People will go to get married, and essentially what you're doing when you go and make that commitment is you're saying, if you make me happy, I'll make you happy. But if you stop making me happy, I'm out with the sound as well. Right? That's how it works. That's not how it works. But that's actually how it works. And, and like divorce rates are climbing. They are skyrocketing. Why? Because it's really a happiness contract. As long as you're making me happy, I'll stick with you. It's not actually love. Because love says, I'll stick with you, not what I get from you. Now, my wife and I were talking about this recently because we've had a number of um, friends and acquaintances get divorced recently. And it's really sad. It's really, really sad. And, and we thought, well, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, this wasn't happening. 50 or 100 years ago, this wasn't happening because there, was there was very strong societal pressure that you stay together. A lot of that was because of Christian influence. Right? But there was very strong societal pressure that you stay together. Whereas today there's very strong societal pressure that you separate if you're not happy. In fact, what's the big reason that most people get divorced? I wasn't happy. And so for Christian people, let me speak to the Christian people in, in the room, those who are married and those who aspire to be married, you will find it exceptionally hard to stay married because the whole world is telling you it's just a happiness contract. It's just about you getting what you want from the other person. Essentially, the subtle call is love how you're loved. Don't love them. Love how you're loved. And so the only way that a Christian can endure the difficulties of marriage in this day and age is to get your love and happiness first from God. Your faith and your relationship with God needs to be all the stronger because you don't have the cushioning of a culture which is saying you have to stay together. You don't have it anymore. It's obvious. That's why the divorce rate, even amongst Christians, is going up. It tells us that we need a relationship with God where we receive our happiness. We receive our sense of satisfaction from Him. And that is the thing that enables us to love the other person. This is an example of faith that is real in a relationship where you really love the other person. So what does this mean for us? Well, I think there's a few things that this means and I want to close with these few things. Firstly, we need to become a yeast-like influence like Noah in our society. A yeast-like influence like Noah. I've learned a lot about yeast recently, uh, mainly because we've been making wine. 
Uh, so I've got some family who have a, um, some uh, acreage of wine grapes. And so this, early this year, we harvested the wine grapes. There's an enormous amount of work in winemaking, not for the faint-hearted. But, so don't encourage you to get into it. However, if you do, uh, the steps are like this. You must cut off the grapes, crush them, process them, put them into vats, uh, then add yeast, which will, uh, inside the sugary sweetness of the grape juice, the yeast will eat, this is a very um, simple version of what happens, the yeast will eat the sugar, produce as a byproduct alcohol, and what you get as a result is wine. There's a whole lot of other stuff that needs to happen after that. But yeast, you just add a tiny bit of this, this yeast to the, uh, the grape juice, and it has an enormous effect upon the whole lot. It is an incredible product. It's the same in uh, making bread. It's the same in many other aspects of fermentation. But the idea is that a little bit can have an impact upon a lot. It has this rising effect upon the rest of it. So too is how Christians ought to behave towards the people around them. We are to, we are to make something new, preserved and better by influence upon others. Just as Noah brought renewal, as, as he believed in God through faith, brought renewal uh, to all of humanity and renewal uh, to an, the animals and plants, like to the whole world, essentially, through this one man, so too we are to bring renewal to others through our lives. We're to do it in family relationships. I've already mentioned this, but if you're a Christian person in your family, you are there for the purpose of its preservation and renewal. You are to pray for those in your family, that they would know Jesus. You are to seek peace in your own family and do good to all. You are not to gossip. You are to speak the truth in love. You are to overlook offences. And you are to be concerned for their welfare, even at the expense of your own. You are not to put yourself first in every situation, but like Jesus, you are to put the interest of others above yourself. This is how you have a yeast effect in a family. Fermentation is hidden. It's not always clear when it's happening, but it does bubble away and begins to impact the whole lot. The work of Christians, like salt, as a preserving agent, being rubbed into the meat or light, illuminating, bringing things into the light, bringing warmth and life, we are to have a yeastly effect like Noah upon our families. We're also to do it in the workplace. We're also to do it in the workplace. I have a friend who uh, works for an electrical company and they, they say there's one guy that just no one wants to work with because he's essentially lazy. And so, he just, so the work team with this one guy, has this negative yeast effect, essentially, so that they're always depressed when they get home after work, having worked with this one person. We've all had that, haven't we? Just that person that just brings everything down around them. But the same is true in the opposite, for good. If you can be that one person who works hard, who doesn't gossip, who's not just in it for your own self-promotion, but you're genuinely concerned about the good of others, about the good of the company, about 
the good of your product, bringing good to people in this world, or whatever it is that you do, you become like yeast that has an influence upon the whole batch. And you may not see it, you may not hear it, but people begin to, the, to feel the effect of the fermentation process in your workplace, the good that comes upon them. And it is slow. It is, it's always slow. It seems really slow when it comes to this kind of work. But God works out his purposes always in the end. I saw something very interesting yesterday. A um, little bit controversial because it's political, but why not? Um, uh, during the uh, coronation service for um, our friend King Charles, we have a king, by the way, in Australia, King Charles, and uh, during the coronation service, there was a number of uh, people who were debating the situation around Indigenous Australians uh, and uh, putting up different views. There were some monarchists, some people who sort of stood in the middle, some Republicans, and some people who just don't care but want... Uh, some recognition for what was done to Indigenous people in Australia. And I was really fascinated. It's very interesting, because we all have our different um, viewpoints based on our political persuasions and our information on the issue. But there's a bloke called Stan Grant. You might be familiar with him. He's actually a Christian and uh, works for uh, the ABC and uh, a number of uh, like other um, news uh, outlets. Uh, does work with all sorts. But the... And whether or not you agree with him, the thing that I was struck by was that he could hold these things together in an unusual union. He spoke with respect, he spoke with love, and he spoke the truth of what he believed all together. And it was, it was very compelling, but it was compelling because of his manner. It was compelling because he spoke with heart, he spoke with passion, he spoke with zeal, he spoke with a sense of hurt and loss, and he spoke with love. And it was extremely unusual in a world where we always criticizing and we're always cancelling and we're always you know, putting down other people because of their views. And yet he did something that was utterly profound. And you know what it did? It changed the entire tone of the debate to one that was respectful, that was kind, that was very informative, truthful, about a very important issue for many people in this country. And I thought, he's got it. Whether or not you agree with him, he holds the truth in love together in union because of his Christian faith. And he spoke openly about his Christian faith. He was quoting scripture. I don't think many people knew that. He was constantly quoting scripture uh, in this space. Very well respected journalist in this country. And I thought, that's it. That's the yeastly effect that we can have. Like Noah, bringing renewal, bringing good into our world. We can do it through doing things in a distinctly Christian way. And what will God see? And what will people see? They will see the God that is behind everything that they do. And we do it just like Jesus does. We lay down our lives in love for others, whether they'll believe it or not. Because we care for them, because we love the lost, just like Jesus does. Finally, a final uh, application uh, for you this morning is, and this is an unusual one. There's a guy in... Um, 
This was pointed out to me this week. There's a guy in chapter 5 of Genesis called Methuselah. It's a great name. Methuselah. Just say it to yourself. Methuselah. Just work. Is it, um, what's the word where words sound good as they come out of your tongue? He's a linguist. Has anyone got that one? No, there is a word for that. I'll, I'll find out next week and tell you. Anyway. Methuselah. Methuselah lived till he was, we're told in Genesis chapter 5, 969 years. He was an old man by the time he uh, dropped off the perch, as they say. Methuselah died the year of the flood. He died the year of the flood. That's unusual. Now, why did he die? Well, we're not told. But there's really two options, isn't there? Methuselah either died of natural causes, old age, and he was pretty old, so that's highly likely, or he died in the judgment of the flood. Now, I just want you to consider with me, because we don't actually know, but I want with you, with me, for you to consider if he died because of the flood. He lived for 969 years and he still didn't believe. 969 years. That is mind-boggling. When we get to 70, we feel old. Some of us. Some of us feel great and good on you. Keep going strong. If you hit 80 and you're still feeling good, keep going. 90, see if you can get to 100. I'm with you on that one. But Methuselah, if he got to 969 years and he still wasn't convinced to repent, it wouldn't matter if he had another 10,000 years. The best we get in this life is 70 or 80 years, maybe a few more. And God has said to us that today is the day of salvation. God has said to us that there is a way out. When we see the birth pains, we see the violence in the world. God has said to us that we need to be in it just for him and not just for what we get from him. For many will say to me, Lord, Lord, I did this in your name and I did that in your name. And he will say, get away from me, you never knew me. What is God in it for? He's in it for you. He's in it to know you and for you to know him. He's shown it for us, for he who did not spare his own son, how will he graciously not give us everything? God cares for you, he loves you, and if you, even if you had a thousand years on this world, it still would not be enough to convince your own mind you are called by God's word to believe. You are called by the death of his own son to believe. And if you believe, if you believe, everything is yours. You enter into the inheritance of God. You're one of his people for all eternity. I'll put that to you this morning. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your kindness, your goodness, your love to us. The way that you... You alone were the one who would give yourself for the many. You're the one that saves the many and you are the one who would lay down your life rather than the many take your judgment, our Father. Thank you that your judgment is just. Thank you that your love is true. I pray that you today would compel our hearts by the goodness of what you've done. Help us to believe. 
help our unbelief. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.